Welcome to Taking Ship, a guided cruise through dumbest timeline America. I'm Frank Spring, and with me is the new offensive coordinator of the Seattle Seahawks, Ellie Jacobs. Ellie, congratulations and welcome. Thanks, Frank. Uh, the first edict I will have is given the option of three and one on the goal line to win the Super Bowl and with the best running back in the game, I will not opt to pass. Uh, with that, we'd like to thank everybody for their comments, both positive and negative. Urge everybody to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at, at Taking Ship. And that's ship with a P as in Oprah, because all letters lead to Oprah. Indeed they do, as did all of the interwebs at the Golden Globes Awards, and which uh, Oprah Winfrey accepting an award, uh, the Cecil B. DeMille Award for Lifetime Achievement from the Golden Globes gave a, Globes gave a speech that was extremely well-received. It set off a, uh, an immediate uh, push, uh, a hue and a cry, uh, largely across the internet, uh, for Oprah to run for president. Uh, it was a, it was, it was a thing. It was a very big thing. Uh, Oprah for president. Oprah twenty twenty was uh, was up on the interwebs for a bit, and you still see even a few days later some of that, uh, some of that still around. Which, by the standards of internet fads, makes this one of the longest live things in history. Right. Uh, it was a very it was incredibly well-delivered speech to a crowd and to a nation paying attention to the Golden Globes, because that's what people do during these award shows, apparently, myself included. Um, she apparently wrote the vast majority of it herself, which is you know wonderful. And she has, has always had a good, good way of words and being able to tell a story. And that's what she did. And everybody should check out Frank Spring's uh, op-ed on the Huffington Post about the, uh, about the, the speech itself. Um, that's some decent log rolling and I appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, it, there's no, uh, so f- obviously there's no way somebody of her stature and intelligence wouldn't have known that those kinds of conversations would have started immediately after, particularly given Seth Meyers, um, monologue at the beginning, um, her longtime partner, Stedman, uh, his comment to the Los Angeles times that it's up to the people, but she'd absolutely do it. Obviously, put gasoline on the fire. Uh, Gail King, her quote unquote best friend, uh, tried to douse the fire the next morning on CBS this morning. Didn't seem to succeed. Uh, Michael Bloomberg in an interview either yesterday or early today with uh, NBC's Stephanie Rule uh, discussed it even more talking about uh, would we do the, would, would, would we do the ticket alphabetically? Um, so there's obviously a lot of talk about this. Uh, I, I've been much more struck with less about Oprah for president and more about what it says, both where the country's at and particularly for us on this podcast, where the Democratic Party's at. Um, and I would say not in a good way if we're all this excited about uh, one speech from Oprah. I don't know what you think about it, Frank. No, that's about that's about right. I mean, I think, and, and that doesn't that's not to condemn her or even us. I mean, it's we are certainly not in a good way at all. And and the speech that's it, the reception of the speech really does speak to I think a couple of things. Uh, the first is the hunger within progressives, the Democratic Party specifically, progressives more generally, for uh, someone who can get up and give a speech that is well-constructed, clear, cogent, inspirational, meaningful, that moves and motivates us in a way that most, uh, that, you know, that few speeches do. Uh, There's a, there's a real desire for that to have, to have a, to have a champion who can get up, 
say stuff that we believe in and say and say that in a really good way. Uh, that's it, it. It is. It's tough to say, but we, it has been a while since we have no, since we have had one of those. Either because we haven't had the right personnel for it, or because people who are in positions of leadership in the progressive world their 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 roles don't really lend themselves to that. Uh, so that's that's part of it. I think the other thing is it's just an indication, sort of more broadly. Within the within the country, and again, these are this is the audience that would choose to watch the Golden Globes. There's, I mean, there's a there's probably already uh, a, a fair amount of bias there, and amongst others, toward Oprah Winfrey, which is all fine. Uh, but it is a it, it shows how hungry I think we are for someone to get up and say something public that is kind and compassionate, uh, and not unbelievably dumb and relentlessly cruel. Which is basically what we've got uh, in present. So I think, I mean, again, this your your point is absolutely right. This this the Oprah twenty twenty stuff says more about uh, says a lot more about us than it does about Oprah, and and that and I think probably five or ten years from now we will be remembering this speech because of that, not because it it was the harbinger of any particular political activity on her part. Right. Uh, I think with that we'll probably end end that bit of the conversation and move directly into. Um, what we are used to in dumbest timeline America, which is President Goodbrain's best words, just saying the worst words. Um, yes, yeah, and the latest one, cool. yeah, it's the latest one that is particularly stupid and cruel is uh, describing um, Latin American and Caribbean countries as shithole countries. He also uh, got in the entire continent of Africa there, which he described as Africa. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously. <laughs> If it wasn't just racist enough to say that, he then said we should be looking for immigrants coming from Norway, a country that probably has a minority population of four, one of which is a penguin. Um, and do we do we want? Let's let, we haven't focused on this one enough, but do we want these damn Norwegians coming here with their you know telemark skis and their rotting fish in jars? Is that what America is, my friends? I ask you. I appeal to you. No, it is not. Well, a uh, friend of the pod, Becky Zimmerman, uh, had a good line on either Twitter or Facebook. I don't remember. I was scrolling through things pretty quickly. But she said, who the hell, who the hell from Norway wants to come here? Give up, you know, clean energy and uh, universal health care and, and, and low spending on a military because they don't particularly need it. And oodles and oodles of oil, oil wealth that they get to support a population. Yeah, it'd be a hell of a hard. Th- yeah, I mean, you know, when I think about their dis- when I think about the Norwegians that yearn to be free of their high quality and free education system, it just makes my blood boil. Yeah. Uh, so apparently, in Donald Trump's mind, um, Germany is an okay country. Norway is an okay country. Uh, Russia is apparently an okay country. Czech, the Czech Republic, uh, or Czechoslovakia. I'm not sure about the Czech Republic. He may not be so into the you know democratized state, uh, and Slovenia, which was. Mm-hmm. For- He's very into parts of the. He's very into some things from the Czech Republic, as yeah. we discovered to our cost, and Slovenia, obviously. Um, but uh, uh, you know, there's nothing really particularly new to this. Uh, Donald Trump is an idiot. He's a bigot. Um, he's most certainly a racist. Um, and whether the Republican Party uh, wants to try to defend it as saying he's just speaking the truth that we all say in our living rooms or not. Uh, the president of the United States should never say something like that. Um, yeah, it's, it's partic- particularly this one. Stupid. Yeah. Um, but with that, Frank, what shithole country did your family come from? Oh, well, I mean, one of the original, uh, one of the original shithole countries to flee from. And my people are from Ireland originally. And that sure. is, I mean, and, and this is, and actually I, I have said this before on this podcast, but I will say it again. 
there, there are, first of all, there are a few things worse than enthusiastically Irish, Irish Americans. It's, we are just, God, sentimental and, and absurd. Um, and, and the thing is you either have to not make that part of your character at all, or you really have to lean into it. Uh, but so if you are someone who is of Irish extraction and, and you find yourself tempted to, uh, to support or say nice things about Donald Trump for whatever reason, remember that it would be you he's talking about if it were a hundred years ago. Uh, I mean, this is these shithole countries. We need people from Norway, all that stuff. That's, that is the modern incarnation of, you know, of no dogs, no Irish. There is not a scrap of moral difference here. And, and if you are, you know, an Irish American person who identifies as Irish American and you have uh, any affinity for Donald Trump at all, you should be fucking ashamed of yourself. Yeah. Um, my family uh, escaped the shithole countries of Poland and Russia, depending on what day of the week it was, uh, it was either one or the other. Um, before World War II. Um, so my family largely escaped the Holocaust unscathed. Obviously, there were some relatives that were, that were taken, but um, those were certainly shithole countries. You can't think of much more shitty than the Pale of Settlements in, in Russia and Poland. Um, and if you think about the people who came after, um, after World War II, the survivors of the Holocaust, and I have a number of friends whose grandparents did, um, post-World War II, Germany, Poland, anywhere in Eastern Europe, is about as shitty as any place has been on earth in the last 150 years. Oh yeah, well, I mean listen, the sad truth of it is like if you're judging it by the standards of Donald Trump and God knows we're not, which you know is a, is a really good thing for everyone, but like everywhere on earth that anyone has ever come from to go to somewhere is a shithole. I mean yeah. what like 17th century England was so great? Yeah, I I I'm I'm always astounded that in any of these uh, depictions of you know, you know Henry VIII or or or, you know, the, the court of Charlemagne or it, it, everybody's got nice teeth and is clean. Yeah. No, these play, I mean, every, everywhere was a shithole at one time. Uh, and, and that, and, and we're, we're having a little fun with that expression, but like, first of all, we, first of all, we dispute what he is saying on, on its own merits. Uh, right. To characterize these places as shitholes is completely absurd, but every, but, but even if you take that definition that like, you know, there's maybe some, some trouble with running. I mean, listen, I've spent like this past year, I've spent more time in Europe than I have recently for a while. And I have to say like, there's a lot to be said about much of the, about this. It's a large continent, obviously with a lot of sort of different cultural uh, traits based, uh, around the various countries. But the water but pressure in Italy is inexcusably shitty. The which? The water pressure. Well, this is exactly. Throughout Italy this is just inexplicably shitty. I mean, you know, there, I mean, many wonderful things have come out of Europe, also a lot of crappy ones, but this, like this continent appears to have discovered hot running water about 15 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I will hear it. So, and, and I would be willing to bet, although I haven't actually been up there. I have, I have been, uh, I've been to Iceland, not to, not to Norway, so I can't speak to Norway's experience, but if it's anything like Iceland or if it's anything like Germany or the rest of continental Europe or England or Ireland or Scotland or any of these other places, I would be willing to bet that the Norwegians just also only recently discovered that you could heat up water and pour it on yourself and it would cool you off and, and it would clean you off and make you feel better. We do not want these people coming in here with their Akavit. It's terrible. It's almost undrinkable. This whole thing is bogus and I won't stand for it. All right. Uh, I mean, the only thing I'll add to this is, uh, you know, obviously the White House couldn't say that he didn't say it, particularly when you had Senator Durbin out there talking, saying that he did it, and Senator Graham saying it was largely uh, accurate or whatever he said to Tim Scott. Um, but I mean, then then Trump comes out this morning and says he didn't say that, which is really, I mean, th this is the essence of, of what this White House is about. Um, it, it, it's an entire administration 
focus on convincing you that you, what you, you see and hear isn't real. Oh yeah, this uh, it is. is it is essentially it is essentially selling luxury real estate. I mean, Team Chaos is just selling, you know, faux marble foyers and you know uh, uh, walls that 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 are uh, uh, you know filled with I don't know fucking turpentine or some shit. This is what this entire administration is. I I have this screen grab, and I don't know where this article is from. And I don't know who wrote it, but I'm just going to read this paragraph out because I think it kind of hits it pretty well. And then, we'll, then, we, then we can move on. But given what Team Chaos is all about and after Michael Wolf's book and everything else. So here's the, here's the paragraph. And again, I apologize. I don't know where this is from. But such incredulity misses the deeper significance of this stuff. The brazenness of it is the whole point. His utter shameless, shamelessness itself is meant to achieve his goal. In any given case, Trump is not trying to persuade anyone of anything as much as he is trying to render reality itself ir- irrelevant and reduce the pursuit of agreement on it to just another part of the circus. He's, a, he's asserting a species of power, the power to evade constraints normally imposed by empirically verifiable facts, by expectations of consistency, and even by what reasoned inquiry deems merely credible. The more brazen or shameless, the more potent is the assertion of power. Yep, that's about right. This is the guy who is trying to persuade you that, I mean, is looking at a burning shack and is telling you that it's a, you know, it's a lovely, you know, it's a really, it's a, it's a very luxurious forebed. Yeah. And and, given what we've learned in the last two weeks is family is selling a lot of those units this year. Yes. Uh, But apparently emoluments aren't an issue and his, he has, his, his sons are not involved in, in international deals anymore, but yeah. Um, but given all that, uh, and the only hope of uh, ridding ourselves of this pestilence uh, is the Democrat, Democrats winning the House uh, in 2018 and potentially the Senate. Uh, there was a really interesting article in uh, Politico just this week, um, or today, yesterday, Politico magazine, um, about a study that uh, was conducted by Sherry uh, Bustos, who's a congresswoman from Illinois, a very red area of Illinois, and she's won, I don't know how many times. Uh, articles called, Heartland Democrats to Washington, You're Killing Us. New report blames elitist National Party for alienating voters and threatening the party's chances in 2020. And it's written by Michael uh, Cruz. Um, this article is fascinating. The study itself, I haven't really, it, it's not so much a study as a series of um, in-depth interviews conducted by a uh, political scientist who's an, who's an advisor to Bustos. Uh, but the point that this article is making is one that I've made a few times on this podcast and certainly have spent a lot of time um, focusing on in conversations or uh, conversations, both free ones and when I'm being paid to converse with people and, and give some ideas and consult is this idea that the Democratic Party and the rest of the country does not represent the Democratic Party that we see in the media and does not represent the Democratic Party we see on the coasts. There's no real news there. Uh, we kind of all knew that. The issue is, and this is you know, a big question because this article, the article in Politico really highlights this one particular legislator, uh, legislator in um, Indiana who is um, um, anti-abortion, um, uh, he's, he's, he's pro-life, not in favor of abortion, but as he says, uh, it's the law of the land, so I will do everything I can to defend it. Uh, he is pro-gun. He, he, he um, uh, bandies about his A-plus rating from the NRA. And he's a, Pentecost, he's a Pentecostal. Um, and the real question then becomes, and this is the question that uh, I, I have repeatedly asked a lot of people, is 
are there room for people like that in this party? Or have we slipped too far into the identity politics and loony lefty Bernie Sanders wing of things that those people no longer feel welcome and more importantly, that their voters don't feel welcome? Um, and with that, I, I, I'll, I'll, Frank, why don't you jump in here? Because I've sure. been talking yeah. for a while. I, I, I didn't think as much of this piece as you did. Uh, and... And here's why. I think it kind of answered its own question, and or rather answers your question itself. But we'll, before I talk about this, I will say, I want to say something nice about it because, or not about the article itself, I have no interest in doing that, but but I will say something nice about Sherry Boostus and what she's trying to do here, uh, which is, I mean, she's, she's making a good point that there are uh, rural communities where the Democratic Party hasn't been seen in any meaningful way and where it has lost a huge amount of traction over, you know, over the last 35 years. That's very, that is a hundred percent true. Uh, and, and why that has happened, I think is absolutely fascinating. And, and you can, there are any number of reasons why that might be the case. The incentives for a party trying to win an election don't always line up. We're trying to win a, a, in a short-term election, an oncoming election, uh, an immediate one, don't necessarily line up with doing the kind of community organizing, the kind of, you know, representing the party out in rural areas. That was a big part of Howard Dean's uh, 50 state strategy in 2000, uh, in 2005, 2006, uh, paid very heavy dividends and, and, w- and was continued in the Obama campaign in 2008 when they put organizers in, in places that hadn't seen a Democrat in a generation. Uh, and I think that we may have learned as a party the wrong lesson from the victory of Barack Obama, who briefly made a whole chunk of the country, including rural Amer- rural white Americans. That's really what we're talking about here. We're talking about rural white Americans. Uh, you know, I mean, turn, you know, turn them into Democrats briefly. We talk about the Obama coalition, and I do this myself. I talk about well, the- I'd, ar- I'd argue that they were Democrats. They, we lost them during the Bush years, but they voted Clinton in 92 yeah. and 96. Sure. So that's, and that's a fair point. They were reactivated for, for the presidential. That's a, that's a good point. They, were, they, they came home for a presidential election in a way that they didn't in 2000 uh, or 2004. That's, yeah. that's a good point. Yep. When, we, when I talk about the Obama coalition, I have a tendency to do I, to mean it the way a lot of other people mean it, which is uh, communities of color, uh, women, and college-educated folks of all descriptions, college-educated white dudes. Uh, that is that is fair, but it leaves out something, which is the Obama coalition actually included the so-called white working class. We've talked endlessly about that term and what it takes in, and it, and it included a lot of these rural white folks who, who liked him and liked what he he stood for. And, re- and some of that was a reaction to uh, the Bush years, but some of it was about him and the kind of campaign that he ran. Uh, since, and I think our, our sort of sense has been as a party, well, we can just wait for another Obama. Or we, we win these people in presidential years. We won them in 92. Oh, we won, yeah, we won them in 92. We won them in 96. You know, we didn't win them in 2000 or 2004 because we, and we blame those on our presidential candidates. We'll get another great presidential candidate and this will fix the problem. It wasn't a conscious decision. No one sat in a room and said, okay, we're going to ignore rural America. Uh, but it just happened about that. But I, the idea is like that's rural America is for presidential years and for great presidential candidates. That's that, that became kind of the way a lot of Democrats approach rural voters. And again, there are good reasons for this. If we've talked about the calculus for the Hillary campaign, if you have, if you're, you know, if your modeling and your projections suggest you have the numbers to win in 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 urban areas, your return on investment in turning out the vote in an urban area is much better than than doing organizing in a rural area. Organizing in rural areas is hard; it's expensive because 
you know, spoiler alert, people are really far away from each other. Also, there are fewer Democrats for reasons we've discussed. So all of the point you know, to the point that Sherry Bustos is making, I think, in, in commissioning this and at, the, and at that point makes that there needs to be a, a, an, in, an investment in rebuilding ties between rural Americans and Democrat and the Democratic Party, I think, is absolutely spot on. The challenge I have with this is there are a couple of things. First, I don't think that's inconsistent with pursuing some of what has sometimes been called identity politics. Because the, the party needs to make essentially two cases. And, and I'm going to go, the, the first case is we need to be able to tell a story about America, about what has happened to America, and specifically about why America hasn't worked out for a lot of people, including these rural Americans, the way that they thought it would. And as a party, we just haven't answered that. that so that's, that's one narrative we need to be, that's part of the narrative we need to be able to tell. The other part of it is the story of a country that is expanding you know, right to opportunity and dignity and protection to all of its citizens, to more of its citizens than have ever had it before. That includes communities of color uh, you know, and, and, and other groups that have historically been marginalized. We've done a much better job of telling that story. And when we don't, when you, and in fact, there are times when we only seem to be telling that story. We don't have to stop telling the story about the importance of expanding the rights, of, the right to opportunity and protection of law and dignity to marginalized groups. That story needs to be part of a broader story that also includes how we make America work for everyone. And we haven't, we've started to move in that direction. We've discussed in the past why there really isn't anyone in the democratic infrastructure whose job it is or who's in a position to capture and make and pull that narrative together. And as a result, we haven't begun to see the effect of that narrative of, you know, of, we haven't really begun even, even uh, to formulate and to really push a cogent narrative that includes why America hasn't worked for a lot of people and how we're going to make it work for everyone. Right. That's that, that, that just hasn't gotten across. We've tried the house leadership uh, brought out the better deal last year that was fine. It was message tested. I have some reservations about it, but I think it's broadly a pretty good thing. But again, we don't have a we don't have a messenger like a presidential candidate. You can bank, you know, the House leadership can buy all the ad time at ad times ad ad space it wants to, uh, and it will through the various packs, pushing you know that message on behalf of Democratic candidates in rural areas and elsewhere. Uh, but there is no substitute for a presidential campaign to get people's attention and to and to and to rebrand a party. So to a certain degree, I think there's been a direct, we've moved in the direction that I called for, which is to talk a little bit more about, you know, I don't know, kitchen table, pocketbook issues, how to make America work for everyone. Uh, we just haven't seen the effect of that. And, and I, I, I will, but about this piece, I will say, it kind of answers your question. Why isn't there room for someone? Is there room for someone like this in the party? Well, sure. I mean, it's this guy, right? Like it's, it was an odd piece because you've got someone, it's got, it's gotten hold of someone, the, uh, uh, the, the Indiana state rep in the, who's sort of features prominently in the story, you know, who is a, you know, self-described, uh, you know, Pentecostal or is a Pentecostal, uh, pro, you know, pro NRA, pro gun, uh, and, and anti-abortion. That is kind of how these people fit into the party right now. I mean, is he not being allowed to caucus with Democrats? No, he's being allowed to caucus with Democrats on abortion, on a, on a pro-choice bill. Uh, he was, I think it was the pro-choice bill, or no, it was the gay marriage bill. That was the one where he was given permission. He didn't feel like he could vote for it in his own conscience, and he was given permission by the caucus not to vote at all. And then when it passed, he said, this is the law of the land, and we have to honor that. That is right now how people like this can exist, how people with those views can exist within the party. And, and that's, you know, he's allowed to caucus with Democrats. 
beyond that, I, I presume that he votes with them on, on budget issues and so forth. Those people are actually pretty much everywhere. It's not that we have, that we have tried to turf them out. The voters who identify with someone like that and will vote for him locally, and re- the real question here is why are they voting for him locally and Republican nationally? And that is that nationally Democrats have lost track of, you know, we haven't put together a cogent narrative of how do we make America work for everyone. Uh, and that, that seems to me the real issue here, not by, you know, by talking about uh, enfranchising that it's enfranchised and how we're making strides to, you know, expand again opportunity and, and protection to, you know, to previously marginalized communities. That doesn't automatically turn off the turn off these folks, but it makes it seem like that's all you're about if you don't have something that talks about how you're going to make America work for them as well. That I think is what Bustos is picking up on, and I think what this piece is trying to get at. Right, I'm, there's very little in there I can disagree disagree with. I think that there was it, it was interesting that you were talking about some of the tactics of the presidential, um, and one of the things that struck me is that if we're only hitting these people every four years, that means that they are fifty percent as far along as the rest of the country is. Oh yeah, and um, and we're not even hitting them every four years. I mean, that right. if we really want to put something on it, that is a catastrophic mistake that we have. I mean, I was going to say we'll live to regret it. We have lived to regret it. We should be fucking consumed with regret about this. Yeah. So you know, one person in let's say uh, on a scale of you know zero to one hundred, somebody in uh, somebody in New York thinks uh, whatever the issue might be is at one hundred. Somebody in Pennsylvania thinks that it's at seventy five. Somebody in Indiana thinks that it's at 35 or 50 percent or whatever it might be and that's an important differentiation is the fact that this is largely ignored um i think the point that they were trying to make about can these people exist in the party is and uh this legislator make, makes an interesting point in it he's talking uh with a uh, uh there, there's an interaction that's recounted by the author um between th- this uh, elected uh, official and one of his constituents who's wearing a make america great again hat uh, who rally, ra- rails about um, um, a Muslim cabbie or something like that, or a, a, a Muslim truck driver he was supposed to train on, something like that. Sorry, I don't, don't remember exactly. Yeah, yeah, but it was, he was somebody Muslim. Tra- worked for a trucking company he was supposed to train a yeah. Muslim gentleman um, and refused to do so. Right. Um, but the, the takeaway from the story was that this guy with the MAGA hat and said you know, negative things about a Muslim um, voted for this Democratic legislator because of they are friends. And the legislator made the point that if we agree on 90% of the issues and don't, don't agree on the 10% of the issues, we just don't talk about those 10% of the issues. And uh, this is an anecdotal from conversations that I've had over the last year and a half or, or more. Um, folks in a lot of these quote unquote flyover country uh, counties um, feel that the 10% that they can't talk about with people um, is the 10% that the party focuses on. Uh, whether that's true or not, um, it, it is a feeling that 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 is that that they have, and this might be just because of this idea that they're only folk, you know, uh, folks in flyover countries are only focused on every four or six or eight years, whatever it might be. Um, but you look at uh, um, what the party did with uh, who was it? it? Was the mayor of Lexington who uh, w- was? Uh, uh, um, pro- I don't like the pro-life anti-abortion thing. It's always just a weird amalgamation of words because no one wants to kill anybody, but. I guess isn't anti anti abortion or whatever, however you want to define it. Wasn't there someone in K- Kentucky, the uh, mayor or something like that, that the party wasn't going to support because of his views on abortion? Am I making that up sometime in the last like six months? I don't yeah, know. It's, it's something, yeah, something like that. But um, 
No, we're, we won't spend a whole lot more time on this because we can go back and forth. I mean, it's an important issue to discuss and, and one that's worthwhile kind of viewing why, you know, and, and a lot of this goes back to, you know, if these are the folks who view John Kerry as too effete and too elitist and too, you know, waspy to vote for, and they viewed Al Gore as too boring or too Washington or too fake to vote for. Um, but then they were turned around by Barack Obama because they saw him as being um, honest and truthful and a good person um, and had a great personal story and could present it really well. And then Hillary Clinton had none of those things. Um, then, yeah, we need an inspirational and, and more importantly, an aspirational candidate for uh, to, to be able to win some of these folks back. And I don't know who it's going to be. I mean, that's why I think the conversation just kind of, I think that's why people got so excited about Oprah because she is kind of all those things. Oh yeah. And she, you know, she made her, her very considerable living uh, connecting with and appealing to uh, you know, the heartland of America. Uh, yeah. So the, the idea that she could communicate with that audience, I think is absolutely right. And I think that's partly what people are picking up on. I want to say a couple of things. I think you're, you know, I, I think you're a lot of what you said, I think is really fair. Uh, I do think that, and again, this, this function that, that the issues that are less important to uh, you know, I mean, rural Americans, uh, rural white Americans, uh, the issues that are less important to them that do do seem like they have captured the total that, that that's what the Democratic Party is about. You made that point that it's they may care you know ten percent about uh, the Democratic Party's uh, social mission, and they may not care even that much about the Democratic Party's social mission. In the absence of a coherent narrative that explains, again, why America hasn't worked for a lot of folks, including and especially a lot of rural white Americans uh, in this case, and how America is going to be made to work for them, of course they would think that's what the Democratic Party is about. We're not saying yep. anything else. And, yep. and, and, I, and the counter to this has been, well, you know, Hillary Clinton released a bunch of – released an economic plan – and she, you know, mentioned the economy, the economy, but there was no narrative there. We're not talking. We haven't actually copped to the big problem for a lot of the for a lot of these folks, which is an appearance that America doesn't work. That they had expectations for what life would be like in this country, and they weren't able to get them. Uh, and that didn't happen for them. They worked hard. They played by the rules, and they lost. Yep. And we can't, weren't even able to acknowledge that that happened. Yep. Much less talk about how to fix that. In that sense, when we start talking about this, we're going to be cooking with gas. I will say, however, and I thought the the thing about uh, the truck driver refusing to train the Muslim gentleman was a really was a really good point because we don't. Ha- it's not our job as a Democratic Party to make this guy comfortable being a racist. Like there's, right. I think that that a lot of this stuff, and I, and I don't. This is not at all what you. This is not at all I, what you. Right, but I, I think into this territory where it's like we just have to let people know that it's okay that we hear them. It's like actually, you know what? On the Muslim shit, I don't hear you, man. That's just that, that's right. bullshit. I, right. I don't think, but I think the difference is, is that the, the, the legislative, the elected person who, who was having the conversation with him, rather than turning around and lecturing him or making him feel like he's one of the deplorable or something else, just kind of ignored it and let it go on. And I'm not saying that's necessarily the right reaction either. I don't believe that it is. I believe you do need to correct people when they're flat out wrong about something. Um, but I do believe, I think that, you know, if you look back to, uh, some of the stuff that actually I think tripped up the Republican Party is when they de- 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 dug too deeply into some of these social issues, um, when they dug into people's bedrooms. Um, and I think that when anybody um, anywhere in the country, I think particularly in these places where people live, you know, 100 miles apart and that kind of thing, uh, anytime there's anybody telling you anything that you that that is outside of your kind of 
purview or something that's outside of what you're comfortable with, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, whether it's a Republican telling you who you can and can't sleep with or something like that, or a Democrat telling you how to talk about somebody who's cisgender, whatever it might be, um, that's offensive to, to some of these people. Um, and and I, I think that we run a really difficult, I think, that, I think we've created a situation as a party where there's a certain amount of built up contempt in some communities about the way that they feel that they now have to talk about people that is new and different to them. Going back to kind of the story that I was, that I uh, told a couple months ago about being called a troglodyte by some, by some people when I was, when I was meeting with them. Um, that, that real, that struck me. Uh, I mean, for people who are new to the podcast, uh, several months ago, um, I was uh, invited to have a conversation with some very well-intentioned people who wanted to get involved in politics, uh, well-heeled people, um, and was very interesting conversation, very intelligent conversation. And at some point I started to invent this narrative about this guy in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, um, who, uh, you know, kind of this ideal, you know, kind of blue collar, um, um, couple, um, and I, I'm going to skip over a lot of details, but the important one being that, uh, a guy he plays poker with every month happens to be gay. And Jim, the guy I was describing, um, and Jim and his friends, they play, po po play poker with the guy twice a month, three times a month, whatever it is. And they refer to him, uh, as a fag. And, uh, one of the people uh, that I was speaking to called me a troglodyte for using the word. Um, when she, and she basically made my point by using the word. By calling me a troglodyte. When the, and, there, and the thing is, the outrageous part of that story is there are so many other reasons to call you a troglodyte. I know, right? But this is, yeah, I mean, all right. So there is a sense that we're policing people's language. On the other hand, I mean, they're like, you know, I mean, in your, your hypothetical about the relations between those folks is not something I'm going to comment on. But but the general sense that like, there, and, I, and I can speak to this because the, there are, there certainly are folks who feel like, well, you know, we used to be able to say things and now we can't say those anymore. The reason you can't say them anymore is that they're, they're really offensive. Right. They are, they are designed to, you know, the, the whole purpose of them is to strip people of their dignity. Yeah. And, and, and this is again, where we get into, and this is, and I think that we've actually hit on, I don't, I don't know if this is a solvable problem for the Democratic Party, except to create such a good narrative about how we're going to make America work for everyone, why it hasn't worked for everyone, how we're going to make that happen, that it drowns out, not drowns out, but that it's able to, that's actually not at all what it does. It successfully incorporates and makes acceptable the social mission of the Democratic Party, which I would argue is very, is as much at the heart of the party as, uh, in, as income equality, uh, and and this is the this is the issue. So many Americans, so many white Americans, particularly, uh, are raised to believe that talking about race is rude. Mm -hmm. This is kind of how we've all gotten, or how we've sort of think, how we believe that we've gotten around uh, around white supremacy is the idea that well, we're just not going to talk about it anymore. Right. Talking about it is rude. And it makes and it's and, and if someone is talking about race, it must be they must be trying to make us feel bad. I don't know how you talk about extending dignity and protection and opportunity to uh, marginalized communities that haven't received it really ever in the history of the country without talking about race or gender or sexual orientation or, or other things. And, yeah. and that, I don't know that that's a, I don't think there is an easy fix for that as a party, except that we've won elections saying that before, uh, you know, with, with that social mission still squarely in mind. And that's been when we've been able to tell a bigger story about America. People will let you disagree with you. It will will let you disagree with them and still vote for you. But you have to have something in common. They have to feel like you at least care a little bit about them. And that's just where we've fallen down. 
Right. I, you know, I, this is something we've also talked about on this podcast that um, one of the reasons that uh, you and I, and again, our definition of the white working class being um, cultural uh, as opposed to economic, um, the, one of the reasons that they, that the white working class ran towards Trump and such to such a degree is not that they necessarily disagreed with the changes that happened under Barack Obama, not that they necessarily disagreed with what he had done, but I, I, I think that it was the pace and the speed of it. Um, and, and, you know, there are places that aren't ready for that yet. And they're getting, they're getting it one way or the other. And so the way to, the right. way to deal, and the, and the thing is the way to deal with it, the way that Obama sort of dealt with it is he gave the, Obama was very good. And, and I, and, and I think this came from a very genuine place of persuading at persuading people that he cared about them. And he persuaded a lot of people in 2008, he persuaded a shitload of yeah. people about them. And I believe that he did. And he was able to replicate a similar, he was able not exactly to replicate that. He's one of the few presidents who won his reelection by fewer votes than he did, than he did his, his initial election. Uh, but he was, you know, he was someone that made, again, the Obama coalition includes the white working class, includes rural Americans, um, not not all of them, certainly, but enough to win. And he was able to do that by persuading them that he had them in mind and cared about them and and could make a good case for it in a way that, uh, you know, for reasons that we've discussed and we'll probably discuss again, Hillary Clinton was not. And that at the local level, to get back to to the point, uh, at the local level, we just haven't even tried to make that case, in right. part because it's a question of resources. Right, right. All right, I think we've kind of beaten this to death, and I'm sure it's something that we will talk about again many times in the future. Um, as Possibly to the exclusion of all else. Yeah, uh, I think it's something worthwhile talking about, and, and I, I, I still, I think that this, that the story in Politico hit me in the way that it did, not because it was an incredibly well written article or the way that they, he went about describing the report was particularly good. Um, just the reality that people aren't talking about it anywhere near enough. Um, you know, Sherry Bustos is a name that no one heard, heard about a year ago. And uh, now she's become one of the spokespeople for the party, which I think is a very good thing. Um, all that being said, and kind of the lead up to uh, that, the idea that we're only going to change um, the, the, Team Chaos and President Best, uh, good, good Brain Best Words in the White House is if um, Democrats win. Um, somebody asked me the other day um, at, at my local watering hole, um, what would trigger the Republican Party to turn on Trump? And I said nothing. Uh, there's absolutely nothing that will do it because uh, the Republican Party at this point stands for nothing other, and this is different than conservatives, which is a point, again, that Noah Rothman um, painfully tried to explain. Um, I don't know that terribly successfully when we had him on, but it was something that he, he uh, worked hard to, 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 to discuss. But the Republican Party, as a party, believes in deregulation and tax cuts um, as religion, and they are more important than anything else, uh, more important than morality, more important than embarrassment, um, more important than winning elections, I would argue, um, at some level. Um, therefore, there is nothing that the party will, that, that Trump could do um, that will convince Republicans to turn on him uh, in the way that they would need to in order to get rid of him without Democrats taking taking control of Congress. That's exactly right. I think, I mean, it's 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 a short one, the answer. What would it take for them to get rid of Trump? The answer is nothing pre-2018. And, and what might happen in 2018 is that he might commit the cardinal sin. This is bordering on fan fiction. I do not predict this will happen. But if they are, in fact, absolutely hosed down in 2018, which you know, the, which is on the table as is, as are them not getting hosed down either. 
That is also very much on the table, gentle yep. listeners. Uh, but if he were to just, if Republicans are absolutely hosed down in 2018, then he will have committed the cardinal sin of endangering their ability to further their de- to further deregulate. They probably aren't going to do much more tax cutting, uh, but they might. They might try. Um, but certainly, they would not be able to further a deregulation agenda if they're absolutely murdered in the 2018 midterms. Uh, or critically. If they, when I say absolutely murdered, I mean not just lose seats. You would expect that. That's the historical average. But the idea is like, but it's, but they come to the view that this person is so toxic that we may never be able to cut it, to cut taxes or deregulate for ten years unless we take him out back. That's right. what it's going to take for them to do it. So, you know, if it's going to happen, it's not going to happen before the before the election in twenty eighteen. Frankly, I'd be surprised if it happens at all. Yeah, uh, and it's interesting. Uh, Jim Hamlin, who's a writer at The Atlantic, um, ha- had a good line. This is from from months and months and months ago. Um, it was in a little bit of a different context, but I think it's applicable here. Um, yeah, we know Donald Trump is not attached to reality. He makes his own reality. We 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 talked about that earlier in this podcast. That that's ninety percent of what what he won, like his life, essentially. Um, there was that I, I was listening to something the other day, and they played a clip from. I think a Raekwon song from like the early nineties that talks about Donald Trump being like the, you know, the prototypical rich guy. Like he was just recognized as successful and rich, despite the fact that we know he wasn't. Um, Jim Hamlin made the point that it's one thing to say that the crowd that watched him get inaugurated was the biggest ever. Like that is removed from reality. That is not truthful. That is false. That is incorrect. There is nothing provably demonstrably incorrect. Um, we're still going to get our tax cuts and deregulation. That's, you know, my, my addition to that. It's another thing for him to say, I had the largest crowd ever, but it was filled with vampires. And this is Jim Hamlin saying this again on the, at, at the Atlantic. And I don't, don't remember the full context, but I remembered the quote. That's all um, that you really need to remember. Yeah. There um, you have it folks. Donald Trump's inauguration filled with vampires. And it, that becomes the real question because right now Donald Trump being removed from reality and living in his own reality and being embarrassing and everything else that we disdain about him is not enough to make the Republicans question him. Or, um, but maybe if he really detaches um, from any semblance of sanity, would that do it? Sure. I still if, don't, I still don't think if, so. If in that, in, if in that, that dementia, he endangered their ability to further the re- their agenda of deregulation and tax cuts. Right. Unless and until he does, if they can manage his, if they can manage him around that, if they can manage around his dementia and to to so where he at least worked well like, with Reagan. Yeah, and and uh, yeah, that's and that's exactly right. You, I mean, you're you're, you're spot on. It has happened before. Uh, if they can work around him to further their agenda, uh, maybe you know, manipulate him into giving them a hand from time to time. Uh, but certainly, if they can, as long as they can work around him, as long as he's not an active and potentially fatal hindrance, an existential threat to that agenda, they are keeping his ass. Yep. So, folks, uh, again, sorry to deflate your um, what we now joyfully call your impeachment boners, but it's just not going to happen. Um, we're going to keep this short. Uh, hopefully, we're hoping next week to have a good guest and probably have a very lengthy conversation. Um, if you have suggestions for guests, please tweet at us or email us at takingship at gmail.com. We're always open to new and interesting guests. We love when our friends volunteer to come on, uh, that those are always good as long as you're, you know, smarter than us, which is the vast majority of all everybody. Um, but thank you for joining us. Please be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. We really do need those subscription numbers and the ratings are really fantastic. Leave us a little bit of a review, uh, 
can be insulting. Doesn't even really have to have words in it. Apparently, according to the iTunes algorithms, you just need to have one. Just post one in blank. See what happens. Follow us on Twitter at, at Taking Ship. Follow us individually at Frank Spring on Twitter and at Ellie Jacobs on Twitter. Um, and obviously, it's at Taking Ship, and that's Ship with a P as in pediatric. With that, Frank, where are we headed this week? This week, we're not headed too far. We've gone on some wonderful quests, some important quests, some uh, significant voyages over the last few weeks, uh, attempting to beat back the ocean in its uh, its obvious and declared war on, on humanity. But this week, uh, we're going to stick a little bit closer to home. Uh, and, and, and I will tell you how I know where we are going, because as I came out of the, as I was coming out of the gym this morning, uh, two people exited behind me and uh, they were in a conversation. And the first person said, uh, when we get home, uh, or when we or tonight, uh, tonight, uh, you know, let's, let's have, uh, you know, some chicken breast or something. She started talking about what dinner, what dinner could be. Uh, let's have some chicken breast and maybe some spinach. And the other one said, or we could make mac and cheese and eat it out of the pot. And the first one nodded. And the second one nodded and they carried on. And so, my friends, we take ship now to wherever people are making mac and cheese and eating it out of the pot for dinner because that sounds awesome. It does indeed. Take care, everybody. <laughs>